This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Irritable bowel syndrome is a very common GI disorder with worldwide prevalence rates around 10 to 15 percent. While the majority of patients have either mild or moderate IBS, in about 25 percent the symptoms can be severe. Irritable bowel syndrome accounts for a substantial number of visits to healthcare providers, very commonly primary care providers, and can represent up to 12% of our total visits. The condition can have a major effect on one's quality of life. The cost of irritable bowel syndrome is significant, and some estimate these costs to be over $20 billion per year, and this is related to lost work productivity and absenteeism. With us today is Dr. Stephanie Hansel, a gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic. Stephanie, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Daryl. Well, let's talk a little bit about irritable bowel syndrome and how you define it. Okay. Well, irritable bowel syndrome falls under the umbrella of functional GI disorders. It's really defined as a patient having abdominal pain with alteration in bowel movements. They may have diarrhea, constipation, or a mix of both. So it's a there's different types there, of There's syndrome. different types. There's actually three types, and it depends on what the predominant stool pattern is. So if it's diarrhea, they would be diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea predominant. If it's constipation, um, it would be constipation predominant. And then if it really goes 50-50, probably mixed type. The treatment modalities or what you would choose to treat your patient depends on what their um, predominant symptom would be. So mm-hmm. it's important to ask your patients what their bowel habits are really like and, and, and figure out the symptoms for them. Is one type more common than the other? So I'd say, no, it does not seem that one is more common than the other. Okay. How common is this? I mean, we've got some numbers here, but it seems like I'm seeing patients with some symptoms suggestive of this essentially every week. I I think the numbers that you mentioned in your introduction are accurate. We figure there's about 25 to 45 million people in the United States that have symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, but not all people seek care. Those that tend to have more uh, decreased quality of life or the symptoms bother them more are the ones that tend to seek our care. Mm -hmm. Are we born with this? Uh, Does it develop later in life? And, And if so, what age does this typically occur? We can see it in children as well as adults. Typically, people will develop their symptoms before age 50, but there are some folks that develop their symptoms after the age of 50. Um, Many of us think it happens kind of in the teenage, young adult years. Any thoughts as to why this suddenly develops in people who have never had problems before? The only ones that we really think we know what might have caused the symptoms are those that might have like a severe gastroenteritis. And so it seems that there's a tie between them having uh, significant symptoms from gastroenteritis and then afterwards their bowel pattern does not go back to what it had been, what their normal was. For other folks, it's we really don't know what causes irritable bowel syndrome. There's many theories out there. What they think may be involved in the development of it, there could be genetic factors, immune factors, uh, psychosocial factors such as uh, having abuse in their past. Um, There could also be factors 
um, like the gut microbiota, which we're learning quite a bit about, um, and an altered stress response. So we think it's gut-brain access, but mm-hmm. we really don't have an idea of what causes it. And since it's different in many people, there may be more than one uh, cause for IBS. So I, we've kind of put the stigma on it that it's due to psychosocial issues, but no, we used to think peptic ulcer disease was due to stress, and uh, later we find out maybe there's a bacteria involved. Uh, so there might be some uh, physiologic thing going on which is triggering this. Correct, correct. And I think there is a lot of research going on, especially in the gut microbiota, but I just don't think we're there yet to say this is the cause, but I'm happy to say that that's being studied and Mm -hmm. maybe we are getting closer to to an actual etiology or pathophysiology. Sure. So if one has irritable bowel syndrome, are they destined to have it for the rest of their lives? I, I don't like to call it a lifelong condition, but it, it, you do have to set the expectation with your patients that it likely is a long-term condition. Um, it is something that can flare um, over time, so maybe they have problems when they're in their early 20s, when they have the stress of college, if stress is a factor, and then maybe it doesn't occur again until you know 10 years later. So it's something that's a, a long-term condition, but it can flare over time, and symptoms can change over time as well. Okay. Does one ever go from the constipation predominant to diarrhea predominant? Yes, yes, they can. Um, there aren't a lot of um, great studies kind of alluding to that, but symptoms can change over time. Pain can be more bothersome. Some people even change from, say, more IBS-type symptoms to more functional dyspepsia symptoms. So when they're in that umbrella of functional GI disorders, the, the symptoms can change over time. Mm-hmm. Now, there some things that I've seemed to notice in taking care of patients who have irritable bowel syndrome, but I don't know if they're accurate or not. Like, it seems like I see more females who have irritable bowel symptoms than males. Is is that accurate? It does seem to be um, more predominant in females. There aren't a lot of studies out there. There's some talking about like the gender um, and and sex issues with that, but in truth, we really haven't studied the males as much. They don't sign up for research studies as much, and so when you look at the papers and things like that, they talk about maybe sex hormones are involved in um, irritable bowel syndrome in women, but we really don't have a lot of research on the male side looking at the androgens or or other factors and so we need more research in this area Mm -hmm. cultural factors are also thought to play play a role in it and i think looking at the worldwide population in in some areas males might have more ibs symptoms than women but in the u.s it seems to be more female but we aren't exactly sure why you mentioned different cultures is is this more common in some cultures than others do we know that um we know that it's less common in some cultures, like in the Asian culture, there mm-hmm. seems to be less percentage of it. Um, but the highest numbers I've seen were about 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you mentioned in your introduction, um, 10 to 15% of folks worldwide. Okay. The other thing I, I've wondered about is that patients with irritable bowel syndrome sometimes seem to be more commonly on antidepressants, uh, maybe have increased anxiety, symptoms of depression, is that a fact or is that a myth? It, it does seem that they do have more issues with anxiety and depression, but what I always struggle with is what started first. Um, if you have irri- severe irritable bowel syndrome and have decreased quality of life, of course you're gonna be mm-hmm. feeling anxious or depressed about life, 
but um, there's also other folks where you've noticed that their anxiety and depression is playing a role and then they start to have GI symptoms and maybe they don't cope with those well. So there's a relationship, but I think it varies per patient as to which starts it. Sure. I imagine it can be very much like chronic pain where if you have chronic pain, it's not uncommon to develop uh, depression symptoms. uh, That's exactly how I think about it as well. How about foods? Is food related to irritable bowel syndrome? Are there foods that should be avoided or are there some foods that might help the condition? So that's an interesting topic as there's a lot of different diets out there that folks try. There isn't um, a list of foods um, for each and every patient though. It really depends on what the patient feels their triggers are. So there's been um, a lot of research in terms of the low FODMAP diet. Patients do seem to respond well to that diet. It takes out a lot of the carbohydrates, gas-producing foods, but it's a difficult diet to follow. And so research also suggests that doing simple things like eating regularly, avoiding caffeine, gas-producing foods, those, that might be just as effective as following a pretty strict diet. The ones that, the foods that um, we typically go over with patients in clinic would be trying to find out um, how much caffeine they take in, trying to sort out if it's a dairy issue. Many people have lactose intolerance. Fructose intolerance is also becoming um, more obvious as we learn more about it. Um, and then artificial sweeteners. So artificial sweeteners um, can have an osmotic effect and can lead to diarrhea. So it really may be that they're taking in too many artificial sweeteners and having diarrhea but not having irritable bowel syndrome. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the top ones, alcohol, carbonated beverages as well. This is Dr. Stephanie Hansel. Join me and other Mayo Clinic colleagues this October. Experience Minneapolis, Minnesota's lively nightlife after a day of discussing emergent therapies, best practices for diagnosis and management of inflammatory bowel disease, treating to target, and more. This one-day real-world IBD course will include lectures, panel discussions, and Q&A sessions. For more information, visit ce.com mayo.edu and search IBD. So you mentioned lactose intolerance. Uh, Those patients can have very similar symptoms, but that would not truly be considered irritable bowel syndrome, right? That that's the way I think about it. Correct. Mm-hmm. The things that I feel I need to look for in my patients, if I can't sort it out from taking a good diet history, if they say, well, maybe, maybe it is dairy. I might order a carbohydrate breath test to look specifically at, um, lactose or fructose lactose. If you don't have breath tests available to you, you could also ask them to avoid all dairy products for two weeks time and see if they feel better. If they do, that might be your answer. And it maybe really wasn't irritable bowel syndrome. Fructose is a little bit more difficult because it's found in so many foods. It's an additive like high uh, fructose corn syrup. It's found naturally in in fruits and vegetables. So um, that one, I usually tend to do the carbohydrate breath test if I'm worried about fructose. Mm -hmm. So lactose intolerance is one. Mm -hmm. What other conditions can somewhat masquerade 
as irritable bowel syndrome. Celiac disease is another big one. I really feel strongly that patients should be tested for celiac. If they're on a gluten-containing diet, you can use the usual serology test, TTG, IgA, um, and an IgA level to assess for celiac disease. If they don't contain, if they're on a gluten-free diet already when you're seeing them, uh, which many patients put themselves on, then you have to do other testing like a gluten-free cascade. Um, the other one that I think about um, is pelvic floor dysfunction for those patients that present with um, IBS constipation because maybe they've already tried laxatives and fiber and they're really struggling with that. So pelvic floor dysfunction is really a dysfunction of the muscles and so patients have inadequate bowel movements and suffer from constipation. Mm-hmm. What I struggle with <clears throat> with irritable bowel syndrome is the patient who develops new symptoms. I mean, sometimes this is really easy to diagnose when they've had symptoms for 20 years but the patient who develops recent onset of frequent loose stools or suddenly has major problems with constipation, um, I worry that I'm missing something else. So <clears throat> how do we go about making a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome? What tests should we be doing and how, much, how far do we have to go to exclude other diseases? So it really depends on your patients. Like you, you said, it depends on if this has been something that's been going on chronically and hasn't changed over time or something that's brand new. Um, I think one good place to start is with lab work, looking to make sure that they don't have like a thyroid dysfunction. Calcium um, is within normal range, even a CBC, asking them about weight loss, because certainly IBS should not be associated with uh, unexplained weight loss or nocturnal diarrhea. Um, If you get alarm symptoms, you should be doing tests to address those. And maybe it's an upper endoscopy because they have anemia. Or if they're um, a 60-year-old lady that all of a sudden has watery diarrhea, maybe it's not IBS, it's microscopic colitis. So it, it, you have to take that careful history to, to decide how much to do. If it's unexplained weight loss, maybe imaging is going to be what mm-hmm. you need to do. But if it's straightforward, um, less tests is better and educating your patient and really just looking for those carbohydrate malabsorption type things and celiac disease or pelvic floor dysfunction. The test that comes up most often in terms of do we need it is uh, colonoscopy, whether it's new constipation or new diarrhea. Um, Should we be doing colonoscopy when otherwise it wouldn't be indicated, like say in a uh, 45-year-old patient? Probably not. It's really not diagnostic. I think you should have an alarm symptom that would make you want to do the colonoscopy. But if you really have settled on irritable bowel syndrome, you can make that confident um, diagnosis to your patient and just how you present it to them Mm -hmm. will make them um, more willing to accept the diagnosis. Does having irritable bowel syndrome predispose individuals to more serious GI disease? No, it does not. There's actually some studies that show that folks with irritable bowel syndrome may live longer than those without. Hmm. That's interesting. (laughs) Finally, let's talk about how to manage this. How do you start? Uh, Let's start with the uh, constipation-predominant patient. Okay. With the um, constipation-predominant person, If they have already tried laxative or fiber therapy on their own, just make sure that they've had an adequate trial. I usually use a month long that they've taken Miralax, maybe a capful every day. They've tried fiber so that if they've had an adequate trial and those have not worked for them, and I'm not suspicious of of another disorder, then um, I often 
will go to medication like lenactolide. Um, there's, there's actually a couple medications out there. Um, lubiprostone is another one. SR, SSRIs may also be an option because they in, do increase the transit. Um, so for constipation, those, those are some options. Do you start with fiber before Miralax, or does it matter? It doesn't matter. It seems whichever the patient. If you take the history and they have a, a diet that's quite low in fiber, I probably would start mm-hmm. with fiber. And I've had patients ask me, can I take both? Can I use Absol- Miralax and fiber? Absolutely. I actually learned from a patient that he would mix the Miralax in with his um, fiber and just make one slurry and drink it. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. Like so, a double shot. Exactly. So that's what I tell people to do. It's wow. All right. How about the uh, diarrhea predominant? In the diarrhea predominant, if they've um, already tried um, medication, maybe an ant, uh, over-the-counter anti-diarrheal, then um, we often go to tricyc- low-dose tricyclic antidepressants. They can help off- also with the pain, but they can decrease the transit. If you, um, some patients aren't real keen on trying a medication such as a tricyclic antidepressant, rifaximin, which is a non-absorbable antibiotic, is also approved for IBS diarrhea predominant, and I believe that they can have up to three prescriptions of that in a year time. It's interesting because as a geriatrician, we try to avoid tricyclics because of the tendency to cause constipation in our elderly patients. So in this case, you're actually using the drug for its adverse effects. Correct. That's interesting. How about using fiber for diarrhea? I do that sometimes as well. Um, I kind of think of it as adding some structure to the stool, so it is certainly worth a try mm-hmm. um, to go ahead and use fiber. Of course, you wouldn't use it with the Miralax in that case, but it, it can have a bulking effect on the stool and may be effective. Mm-hmm. So it, you may want to try that before you'd go into the prescription-based medications. Other um, there, If um, you want to use an antispasmodic like hyoscyamine or dicyclamine, those af- also have a little bit of a constipating effect, so mm-hmm. they may be... Um, Patients may be more willing to try that than a um, tricyclic antidepressant. Sure. Okay. One last question. Anything new on the horizon? Well, new on the horizon, um, a lot of people don't realize that some of the research has suggested that up to 25% of patients with IBS diarrhea predominant may be due to bile acid malabsorption. So there's been some interesting research by Dr. Camilleri about that. And we can certainly test for that, but bile acid sequesterants, if they have excessive bile excretion or production, uh, may be beneficial. Um, Otherwise, there was a new medication that was approved for chronic idiopathic constipation, procalipride, this year. And I suspect that they will probably look to have an FDA approval for that medication for IBS constipation. Mm -hmm. I see multiple new medications advertised on TV for irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, I have a feeling, although I don't know this, they could be quite pricey. Exactly. That's the problem. So we often fall back on things that we've been using sure. for years. One of the, Another new medication that came out a few years ago is Verbeze for IBS diarrhea predominant. And I've asked my colleagues, and we're still sticking to some of the old tried and true mm-hmm. rather than going for the cost, because we certainly don't know that it's that much better. But you, if they're already suffering and quality of life and, and cost is an issue, you don't want to be contributing to sure. that. Okay. We've been discussing irritable bowel syndrome with Dr. Stephanie Hansel, a gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Stephanie, thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you, Daryl. 
If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.